everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well Bipolar. I'm so excited to get into this conversation and introduce you guys to my special guest this week. I am not alone. I am joined by my awesome guest here. We got connected on Instagram, Kit O'Malley. She is the author of Balancing Act, Writing Through a Bipolar Life, Mental Health Advocate, Speaker for NAMI, and Former Psychotherapist. So I can't wait to bring her here and just get into this whole conversation and really let you guys into what things have been like for Kit when it comes down to living with bipolar and sharing her story inside of her memoir and also the work that she's done in the past as a psychotherapist as well. So Kit, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Super excited to have you here. So let me just start from the beginning here. So before there was the book and before you were being an advocate and speaking for NAMI and getting into being a psychotherapist, how did your introduction to the world of mental health start? Did you always see yourself wanting to do something in that realm or talk to me about that? Oh, well, what's interesting is that I actually wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Wow. I did. Okay. And then I was a freshman biochem major at UCLA, honor student, like doing all the right things. And I was severely depressed, like suicidal. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I decided not to become a doctor. It was just, I decided to pull back and I actually quit UCLA, took a semester off and then went to a community college and ended up graduating from Berkeley undergrad in legal studies. So my first experience with mental health was with my own as an 18-year-old, and I got help by going to a cognitive behavioral therapist at UCLA. So he helped me rewrite those thoughts that were so destructive. You know, the world would be better off without me. My family would be better off without me. All those horrible, depressive thoughts that are irrational, but you don't necessarily think they're irrational when you're in that horrible state. And uh, yeah, so that was my introduction. I struggled with depression throughout my 20s and just did therapy for it. I actually became a psychotherapist, got my master's in psychology from New College of California in San Francisco. And I worked with severely emotionally disturbed adolescents in residential and day treatment until I was 30 when I had a year where I had like three major, two major losses in a trauma. My grandma died. I had a friend from high school die of AIDS. It was in the midst of the AIDS epidemic. So I had a lot of friends who were HIV positive and it was just very painful. And then I had a client who was a 16 year old boy threatened to rape me during session. And I went to go get the phone. He disconnected the phone and he tried to block me from getting out, but I got out of the office and got help. But after that, I was like, why am I doing this? You know, it wasn't like I was in private practice. (laughs) It's not like I was with patients who wanted to be there. And so I, I ended up not being able to get out of bed. The depression was like a physical depression that time rather than the thoughts And my parents said, why don't you, I called them up. I'm like, I can't even get out of bed and go to work anymore. I can't do it anymore. They said, why don't you go to your doctor? Why don't you get antidepressants? So I went on Prozac and had side effects. So I took another medication. The the doctor gave me another medication for the side effects. 
And I talked to my parents. I let them know what was going on. And then they said, why don't you get a second opinion from a psychiatrist rather than your regular doctor since you're having side effects? The psychiatrist took me off both those medications and put me on a tricyclic, which is an old school antidepressant. And I ramped to a full a week of full-blown mania, like psychotic mania, where I was thinking in binary code Simultaneously thinking about the Christian saints, mystics, who I identified with, and at the same time thinking about chaos theory. So I I couldn't even decode the thoughts. They were racing so quickly through my head. And also, I didn't, I'm not a computer. I couldn't have decoded the zeros and ones anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I had a friend who called my priest and my dad and said, Kit, needs help now. And the priest came right over with a seminarian who was who had bipolar disorder and they, you know, sat with me while I called up my psychiatrist, you know, to get medications to stop the psychosis and the mania. And my dad flew up and so they stayed with me until my dad got there. So, so yeah, that was a pretty traumatic experience. I've only had that full-blown mania that one time. Although I, I have been hospitalized since then when I was 42. That was when I was 30. And I wasn't hospitalized then. They just changed my medications. I actually ended up moving back in with my parents because I wasn't able to. kept on trying to pull myself up by my bootstraps. But I was falling asleep driving. I couldn't read. So you can't really do a job when you can't read. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh the gosh. words would fly. The letters would fly apart. The words would fly apart. I couldn't hold them together. Mm -hmm. My brain just had not recuperated from the episode. Wow. So I moved back in with my parents. And um, and this was how old? I was 30. Time? 30. Okay. So it was just for a few months. They gave me things to do around the house, you know, paint paint a room, paint some furniture, outdoor furniture, stuff like that. And as I started to get better, they started to charge me rent. And then I wasn't able to do enough work around the house to pay the rent. So as I got better, I then took a temp job and and became more independent, you know, as I, as I got wow. better until I finally moved out. And uh, during that time when I was living with my parents and recovering, I met my now husband. Oh, my gosh. I know. I know. Wow. And we were talking about earlier about what worked and what didn't work. Well, the psychiatrist mm -hmm. who gave me the antidepressant that made me really sick, that precipitated the mm -hmm. mania, described me as being in the adolescent stage of development when I was in that depressive state, which oh that gosh. was not helpful. Mm -hmm. My husband, who met me when I was a 30, then at that point, 31-year-old temp worker who had formerly been a psychotherapist and was now living with her parents, he described me as the most independent woman he had ever met. Hmm. So there's the difference between what not to do and what to do. You have to yeah. look beyond the illness and see the person. And that's what my husband did. He saw who I was. He didn't define me by my illness. He saw that it was hmm. situational, you know, or, wow. or that it was an illness. It wasn't who I was. Yeah, I really love that outlook and especially how you really talk about that point of looking beyond the illness to see the person you giving the two examples of having the the doctor that you were seeing because I had a pretty similar experience as yourself, you know, being put on an antidepressant and then having 
being right into mania like I've never experienced before and then really having that kind of the same kind of dialogue of you know this is what you should be doing just come to your appointments take this and you can't really do too much there's not really there's not really an expectation on you of you can go after what your passions are and you can make it work because looking at you, like just hearing you talk about your background, going from wanting to be a neurosurgeon, studying in school, doing very, very well. And and then just having that drive to, to do that. It's not like you just woke up one day and was like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to take a break. I'm just going to go on a little vacation for a couple of years and just not deal with it. No, that's not what happens. And I love just how you really describe that, especially when you had that happen, when you did go from, you know, being a therapist, wanting to help people after having your own experience yourself with being hit with this depression and then going into working into with a cognitive therapist, really helping you understand these thoughts and get into where the patterns are coming from, what they're looking like, how they're circling around when you're feeling these things and really being able to put the feeling into words Mm -hmm. to express it. And I really love that, that you that had that want inside of you to do that for others, but then also understanding and recognizing having a boundary of setting that when you mention in practice, having the client that you're working with, who was talking about, you know, coming, coming after you in session with threatening rape and then having those two big losses of your friend with the AIDS and then with the HIV developing that, losing that friend and then losing your grandmother as well. And then really realizing that, you know, this is something that, because whether or not we tell ourselves, you know, we can set a boundary, it's eventually going to set it for us. Like the boundary is going to be set for us without us your body falls apart it's not like it's it's not like you can just go on forever like the energizer bunny right you (laughs) you do have a limit to what you can do yes and then also when you mentioned too the hospitalization so i'd love to learn when was the hospitalization and what was your experience like when you were there okay i i well throughout my 30s so after that manic episode and moving back in with my parents i had a psychiatrist who asked me well, have you ever been suggested you'd be put on lithium? And I said, no, but if you think I should be put on, if you think I'm bipolar, I mean, I, I had a manic episode. He's like, no, we actually think it, you know, given your background before that, we think that it was precipitated by the medication. So we're going to try to just very carefully put you on an antidepressant, very, very carefully. And so I was treated with antidepressants throughout my 30s. And then when I was 39, I started experiencing that euphoria again mm. and that I had a, a that God was calling me to one church for Bible study or to an and to another church for spiritual direction and although my behavior was fine and maybe God was calling me to the one church for spiritual direction to the other one to Bible study there was nothing wrong with what I was doing it wasn't like mm-hmm. it was that out but that feeling and that it was God calling me you know that feeling was I recognized as being symptomatic so mm-hmm. I I didn't I wasn't hospitalized right then I was but I was diagnosed I got I went immediately to get help and I was diagnosed with bipolar and put on first an antipsychotic just to nip it in the bud and then a mood stabilizer you know anti seizure medication and over the years I was on different medications you know as they try to find the right mix for you but when I was forty two so I was thirty nine and then when I was forty let me see. My, no, my son was four or five years old. And I was 
anyway, sometime, sometime in the next few years, because I went yeah. back to work. Yeah. What happened then was when I was diagnosed bipolar, I was the same person, same mother. I had a two-year-old, 27 months. Same mom I was before, but all of a sudden I thought that I would no longer be a good mom to him. Mm. Because I After had... After the diagnosis. Yeah, just because mm. of the diagnosis. It was my internalized stigma. I had a stigma against bipolar as opposed to depression. And I thought I'd be a fine mom depressed, even though actually it can be pretty damaging to a kid. <laughs> I thought, yeah. you know, if it's not, if you don't take care of yourself. And I thought I would be a dangerous mom with bipolar. Now, you can be a great mom no matter what, as long as you take care of yourself and make sure that you are not acting out symptomatically with your child. And that when I would act out symptomatically, I've made mistakes. Even if it wasn't a symptom, we make mistakes. And you have to address those mistakes, you know, take take responsibility for them. And I actually would apologize and, you know, go to therapy, bring my kid into therapy, see the doctor, whatever it was that we needed to be done, you know, I would do. So, but then after I'd been working for a couple of years with my son in daycare, I fell apart and I was just not able to, it turns out our, my son was very high needs. He had migraines and ADHD and depression and anxiety, but he was just a toddler at that time. We didn't really know exactly. It was pre pre-K, pre-K years, four years old. We didn't really know exactly what was going on, but he was acting out in preschool and daycare. And I was having, I was working crazy hours, just very long hours. And so I couldn't, I just wasn't and able what, to, again, that boundary. What were you doing at the time? Like, what was what at, were you doing? At that time, the temp work I got when I came back was in commercial real estate. So I actually was called an investment advisor. I was working for an entrepreneur who also had a... Anyway, I was, a, do, I was doing business. I was a businesswoman. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. So complete change of yeah. career. <laughs> but I enjoyed the work. I just wasn't able to, to balance all those needs, my own mental health, my son's needs and, and the demands of my career. Mm-hmm. So I ended up deciding that I needed to be voluntarily hospitalized. Uh, and I just knew it. I knew that I was having what's called rapid cycling and mixed up, mixed episodes. And so it was just up and down, up and down. It's like, oh no, I'm really depressed. Oh, I'm fine. You know, I mean, it was just like minutes away from each other and, and having both symptoms at the same time. And that's really a dangerous, dangerous mix to have all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I know, I knew I needed to be in a hospital and I went to actually to an excellent hospital. I was very, my psychologist told me the hospital to go to, it was in Laguna beach. And so I had like a view of the ocean. It was nice. And they had, yeah. And they had structured activities all day. So you were seeing, you were in group therapy, you were in occupational therapy, you were doing yoga, you were, you know what I mean? All day structured. Mm-hmm. And so it was very much a therapeutic treatment. You know, it wasn't just being warehoused. That's um, amazing to hear that because I know everyone has a pretty different experience. I know for me, it was pretty opposite from what you're what you're describing. I would love to hear. So once you were there, how long were you there for? And then once you left, did you feel like you took anything away or like learned any skills that were helpful? 
That's those are excellent questions. I was there two weeks, and after the two weeks, I did in their partial hospitalization program. And what that's like is it's also you can call it like daycare, but it wasn't really it's partial hospitalization. You go to the hospital to an outpatient portion of the hospital, and you're there from nine to five. Right. So you do the same type of program you were doing in the hospital, but you're doing it coming like it's your job. Mm -hmm. So I did that for several months. And after that, I decided I, I just told, you know, my clinical crew there, I said, I'm getting bored. It's getting repetitious. And they're like, OK, that means you're ready to stop. <laughs> if you're getting oh. bored, if, it's, if you've heard it before and it's already there you've lo you've learned what you needed to learn. So, oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cause see, that's something I also heard from another interview I did actually with an, another guest, Shannon, but she talks about that, the partial, she had the hospitalization and then she said it was pretty some experiences as you, it was a good experience. You know, they had the structured activities and the partial hospitalization outpatient treatment mm -hmm. was really, really a huge, huge game changer on that end too. And then take me down the path of the memoir. So when did that come about? When did you start working on that? And when did you have that moment of wanting to share that? Well, well, it's interesting. In between then getting out of the hospital, right after getting out of the hospital, actually, or the partial hospitalization program, my psychologist asked me, you keep on talking about, like, she didn't dismiss the sense of call that I'd had throughout my life, which I'd had even before my manic episode, like when I was 21, she said, what, tell me more about this call. You know, like she didn't dismiss it. She respected it. And I said, yeah, I've always felt like I'm supposed to do something, but I'm never quite sure what it was I'm supposed to be doing. And I ended up the fall following my summer, you know, the end of my partial hospitalization going to seminary like a for real seminary. Wow. <laughs> so, Can you walk me through so more of what that is? What is that seminary? A seminary is a, a like graduate program for people who are interested in either becoming ordained ministers, that would be a, a degree in divinity, or becoming academic teaching about theology, you know, religion. Oh. So wow. I went to a Christian, multidisciplinary Christian seminary. And that means it was like all, it wasn't just one faith. It was like different Christian, you know, denominations mm -hmm. all were there. And, and so it was really intellectually stimulating for me and, and spiritually stimulating for me. And it became clear in the writing I was doing, you know, in the work that I was doing, that I was called to a mental health ministry. Mm. And I believe that that is what I'm doing now. I'm not go. I don't, I actually don't even go to church. So, but but I do believe there's spirit. So, so let's put that aside. I went, when I was going to seminary, I went to church. But right now I don't go to church. But I do believe that God has a purpose for me and that God has a purpose for us all. Whether you think of it as God or just think in terms of purpose. You don't even have to believe in God to believe in, in love and purpose and that you're enough and that you have a reason that you're here and all that kind of good stuff. So you can even take God out of the equation as, as long as you understand you're loved and that you have a purpose. That's all I really care about. So that was very much a kind of, I can't find the word. It made me feel good about myself, mm -hmm. you know? So, so that was a very healing thing for me to do. 
even though I didn't complete it, I didn't become an ordained minister and all that kind of stuff, but, but I was respected there. And, and so that was, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, you know, I was embraced and respected and all that kind of stuff. So that was great. So later, my husband, uh, several years later, you know, so here I was being a mom to my son. And luckily, mm-hmm. I'd been a clinician. I'd worked with kids. I, I had been in therapy since I was 18. So I was pretty versed in being, I was, I had some skills. I took my son first to be, see a psychologist when he was four and a psychiatrist when he was five. So we definitely used early intervention. He's doing really well now. He's a 22-year-old who lives on his own and goes to college. He lives in his own apartment. So he's doing really well. Early intervention works, folks. <laughs> Make sure that you get the right treatment, right? If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, you know. But my husband, at one point in time afterwards, when our son is a little bit older, but still living at home, uh, my husband's father had a crisis and was in sepsis mm-hmm. in the hospital. And that triggered a hypomanic episode in me because of all the anxiety I had about, oh, my gosh, this is the age mm-hmm. where our parents are going to start having, you know, we were in that sandwich generation where our parents are older and might die soon, you know, mm-hmm. and, our, and we still have this very high need son we're taking care of. And so... What I did with the hypomania was I started blogging. Mm. And I found this incredible community online of mental health bloggers. And and then I also decided started going to local writers groups. And I was mm. embraced in both of these communities, in the mental health blogging community and in the writers you know, groups that I was going to. And so that grew into my memoir. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. Especially how you mention the community aspect Mm -hmm. of that and then just getting started with the blogging and then feeling accepted and that you met other people who understand it and have had those experiences and have been open with it. So that's just, again, really goes back to the point of your environment, right? Like if you were in an environment where it wasn't the case, it might have made you be like, I don't want to write this or have this experience. Right. But being in an environment where you're around people who have done that and really encouraging you to to really share the same. And I love also how you go back to the point of with your son talking about taking him to therapy, introducing that from such an early age of four years old, and then yourself getting into therapy at a young age yourself and then really seeing the value in that because that for me is something that I wish that I had when I was younger, and I know many people listening probably feel the same as well. So with getting involved with these groups, is you were working on the memoir. What was that like for you after sharing that with the world and putting your story out there? Right. Well, as I wrote, what's interesting is I got lots of positive feedback, except there's always somebody like in the family who's going to feel a little upset. Mm Yes. Because yes. you're revealing some family secrets or they might be worried. Mm-hmm. I had my sister even worried at one point that I might get my son taken away from me because I wrote about instances in which I lashed out at him mm-hmm. and it was wrong. But I said, if we don't write about that and be honest about that and how important it is that we don't do that and that we take care of ourselves, Right. So that we don't mm-hmm. do that and that we, you know, it's, it's like 
I said, first of all, I said, I used to be a mandatory reporter. What I did was not, did not, like slapping my son when he called me an effing bitch mm-hmm. was not, it was not going to remove him out of the home. There's no way. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. because he complained, you know, about the slap, I even took him in to see his pediatrician or his fam- our family practitioner. The family practitioner was there, oh, if you had said that to you know, my wife, it would have gotten a lot worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But still I I went and did that with him because I wanted to let him to let him know, first of all, he didn't have to keep it a secret. He could say what happened and he should, Mm -hmm. right? If somebody hits you, you should not think it's a secret. And that I was taking responsibility for it. Yes, I did it. And it was wrong. I lost my Mm -hmm. temper. But that it didn't rise to the occasion, you know. And I wanted people to know that you, we cannot just hide these things. We have to address them. Wow. Yeah, especially too, I love how you mentioned the part of not having to keep this a secret because talking about the story and then putting it out there and having family members, like you said, your sister worried about this and then getting into yourself, like having this outlook of understanding that it was wrong, taking responsibility, wanting to tell the story, but then also wanting to talk about that with your son as well Mm -hmm. of taking the steps in the right direction to correct that. Because I know that's something that I see almost with mental health. Like when we're talking about bipolar, if we're not having to keep this a secret, you know, when you get a diagnosis, you don't have to feel like, and I know you shared at the beginning of when it comes to depression, feeling like you got the diagnosis, then feeling like after that, now I'm going to be a bad mom because of this. So keeping that internalizing the shame Mm -hmm. and then really continuing to perpetuate that and and make it worse and really have these thoughts spiraling. So I love that the fact that you are open because it shows people who are reading that, you know, I've had that experience when I was younger too, or I've, you know, I've had this in my family or me, me, me and my mom have had fights and, you know, hit each other and thrown things. And, you know, like, a, like your pediatrician said, it could have been a lot worse or depending on mm-hmm. what it was or how, how it goes. But for you, when it comes down to your experience so far with the diagnosis and just your entire, all your history, that's so great to hear like how you've had all these different experiences. Like you went from talking about the interest with the neurosurgeon and working as uh, working as a therapist, working with people one-on-one and then going into, you know, being a mom and raising your son and introducing him to the world of, you know, talking about mental health, going to therapy, starting this from an early age and then getting into going into commercial real estate and had all these experiences and then getting into writing the book. So it's like, you've had such a life of, you know, all of these experiences and really being able to take what you've learned from each one and carry that with you. So I'd love to learn, you know, in terms of bipolar, when you think about what it means to live well bipolar, what does that mean to you? Is there anything that stands out to you? Well, for me, I think, first of all, to, to live well with it means you really have to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. right in order to do anything else like if you're a parent in order to parent well if you work in order to work well in order in order to do anything else well you must take care of yourself first Mm -hmm. right because otherwise that's what I didn't do before when I was young I mean even though I was in therapy and stuff I was like overworking 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 I was a total workaholic you know I mean I'm a type A I'm still a type A but (laughs) (laughs) But I need to to say, okay, it's five o'clock. It's time to stop. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You just, just self-care is super important. And for me, self-care involves not just those limits and boundaries and knowing what my triggers are and and paying attention to that. 
It means communicating clearly with the people in my life that I'm close to. It means listening to their feedback because they might notice symptoms when I don't notice them. Mm-hmm. For me, very, very important for me, it means taking my medications regularly <laughs> and yes. sleeping, sleeping every night, making sure I get sleep. So if you're not getting sleep, talk to your doctor about it so that you do get sleep. Take a look at sleep hygiene make sure you're exercising good sleep hygiene. I love the way that you broke all this down of being able to talk about how, you know, how you used to live. And even though you were in therapy, you were overworking yourself. You have that drive to keep going, keep going, just keep pushing, keep pushing. Because it's kind of the same with my case right before I was hospitalized. Same thing, you know, type A, like doing all these things in school. So I love that you mention all of these things that play a part and really what comes to mind, especially when you talk about communicating clearly with ourselves mm. and with others. Mm-hmm. So totally. I love that you brought bring that up. And I mean, has there been anything too, especially the medication piece, the sleep piece and, you know, having that support system and, you know, really finding that community through blogging and sharing your story and then being able to have others reach out to you and right. share the impact that your story has had on them, whether they have a diagnosis of bipolar or have a family member or someone that they want to learn more about it and what it looks like from others living with it. So if so, also too, I'd love to, to know this one last question. I know I always have to have one last question too, but if you could share with me out of everything that we've covered in terms of things that have helped you, what is the number one thing that has made the biggest impact for you? I think that it's coming to an understanding and I have the benefit of I'm I'm 59. So I have the benefit of a lifetime wow, no way. to be able to look back on. But I think it's coming to the realization that my life has purpose and that I'm loved and lovable and loving. And I think that when you're in the midst of a crisis, you don't understand these things. Mm-hmm. But I think that you need to hear them over and over and over again, even when you don't yet quite believe it. You need to understand that your life, even if you don't know what it is, your life does have purpose and that you are loved and you are loving and you are lovable. So I think that that's, I didn't know that when I was, I mean, in the depth, when you're in the depth of despair, and deep depression, mm-hmm. those are not the thoughts that are going through your head. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just, it, it's heartbreaking, the thoughts that go through your head when you're depressed. It's just horrible. And you, you know, we both know. Mm-hmm. And I, when I heard my son articulating those thoughts, it just was devastating to me, mm-hmm. you know. So it's so important that we hear that over and over again and that we just, that, that you are yeah. enough. It's a cliche it's because it's true. <laughs> Yes, I know. And especially having the purpose part of not knowing what it is or maybe transitioning or going through big changes and it doesn't work out the way that you expected, knowing that it always aligns with what you're meant to do, like what you're doing right now. If it wasn't for certain experiences, maybe you wouldn't have written your memoir and been so open. So I'm so thankful for you just taking the time to come out here and, you know, share these points, get into what you have seen that hasn't been the most helpful and has been helpful and has made an impact for you and just everyone else that you've come in contact with. So before we end kit, I want to, again, thank you for coming on and ask you, where can everyone go to get more of you? Okay. Well, I'm really easy to find. Just put kit O'Malley 
Kitomalley.com. It's kit with two T's, O-M-A-L-L-E-Y.com. All my links are there and my book links there. I have resources under resources. I have only the best major resources there. So you're nothing weird. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. Thank you. And don't hesitate to reach out to her. She's so fun to talk to. I just feel like we can talk for hours and hours on this topic and just anything else as well. So thank you so much for making the time to come out. And on that note, I want to end it here and say bye to you, Kit, and bye to everybody else. So have a good one, guys. Bye.